Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Americans have a funny attitude to Canada. We know it's there. We love it in principle, uh, and we don't even acknowledge it in our weather broadcasts unless some cold weather is coming down, in which case we blame the Canadians. But you will notice in your evening weather broadcast on television that everything stops at the Canadian border, as though the weather up there is not contiguous with our own. And it's an attitude we have. We um, C-SPAN happily uh, broadcast, broadcast from the House of Commons showing particularly question time there, but the House of Commons in London, that is, but the House of Commons in Ottawa is a mystery to us because we learn nothing of it. Well, energy is part of the huge trade between Canada and the US. And by the way, nearly 15 million Americans go to Canada every year, despite this studied incuriosity. And to talk about energy and the US is Markham Hislop, an energy journalist and energy media in British Columbia, Canada. Markham, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Llewellyn, uh, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's a great pleasure. Uh, what, how complete is our dependence in the U.S. on Canadian energy in all its forms, gas, oil, and electricity? I, I don't think that Americans understand how tightly integrated the energy systems of the two countries are. Uh, for example, in oil alone, um, all of Canada's exports, about $100 billion a year, go to the United States. And, you know, we produce, I think, about four or five million barrels a day. Uh, we produce uh, 15 billion cubic feet of gas a day. And much of that uh, goes to the American markets. Um, electricity, I mean, most of the, the big, uh, the provinces that have hydropower, you know, BC, Manitoba, Quebec, uh, all trade with uh, the United States. Uh, so it's, it's oh, and I, sh I should also mention automobiles. I mean, these days, because of, uh, you know, the switch over to electricity, that Canada is a big auto industry, and it's, of course, linked uh, primarily to the three, big three uh, in of the U.S., and a huge supply chain between uh, Canada and the U.S. We saw that in February when we had the blockade at the Windsor border, and what that did to American uh, auto plants. So it, it, there really is, a, the, the two economies, uh, but certainly the, the, the energy systems are very tightly integrated. I take it that the incuriosity about, uh, that I mentioned about Americans in Canada is not reversed. The Canadians are not incurious about the United States, but in fact know a great deal about us. Well, <laughs> It, when you're the neighbor to the, the biggest economy uh, in the world, uh, you know, we're kind of the, the mouse and the elephant. When the elephant rolls over, the mouse sometimes get, gets squashed. So we tend to pay attention. And then, of course, you have the, the you know, the, we, every, uh, Canadians get American television. Uh, we get American news. Uh, the, American, the American culture machine uh, it, is, uh, is well known in Canada. So, uh, but it doesn't work the other way. We, we, we sometimes send you, you know, the odd export like a Jim Carrey or a Mike Myers, and we send you hockey players on a regular basis. But until we, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays win the World Series, uh, yeah, there's, there, Americans don't pay us a lot of attention. Tell me about energy. 
your organization, your company, if it is such? Well, we're a small a newsroom. My, my wife, Joanne, and I are the, the two principals, and her background is in TV news, and I'm an, an old uh, print journalist. Uh, but recently, oh, it's in the last two and a half, three years, we've begun doing more of these uh, Zoom video interviews with global experts. And that's, that's really the value proposition that we bring to energy journalism, uh, particularly in Canada, which tends to be a little inward looking on energy issues. And we interview experts uh, all over the world. We, we interview a lot of American experts, uh, European and Asian. And, and then we bring that perspective in and uh, we're wide, we're not a mass media organization. We're very, I think, widely read and, and watched amongst you know, policymakers, academics, scientists, that, that's really our, our audience. And uh, we've been doing this 14 years. And uh, one day, Luella, we will actually make a living at it. Oh, well, I hope it's very soon. I, I've been writing about energy longer than that, and I have made a living of sorts out of it. Uh, tell me about the Alberta tar sands. They're very controversial here. And they were in fact uh, behind the hatred of the Keystone pipeline, hatred by environmentalists in the US, which finally under the Biden administration was halted permanently. Uh, what, is, what are the tar sands and why do they arouse so much feeling in environmental circles? I've done a lot of reporting on the oil sands. In fact, I wrote a book in 2019 uh, arguing that the oil sands sector was finally getting that uh, uh, fossil fuels created their product create what contributed to climate change, and they were becoming supportive of climate policy and decarbonizing and, and kind of cleaning up their act. And based on that, uh, as the energy transition accelerates this decade, and you know the International Energy Agency says that by the early 2030s, we're probably going to hit peak demand and then decline after that. And so if the oil sand sector were able to uh, become carbon neutral at some point, or net zero, that they should be allowed to compete in global oil markets, which in, in effect means the American market because that's where they send all their, all their product. Now, the reason why environmentalists don't like them is because the, uh, it's not oil per se, it's bitumen, which is, has the consistency of peanut butter, which then can be upgraded and refined into uh, oil and then into gasoline and, and diesel. And, it's, and it, in order to either mine it or extract it from underground, which in a process called steam-assisted gravity drainage, SAGD, as it's known in Alberta, uh, you have to use a lot of natural gas to create steam. And that's where the, that's the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the extraction of, of bitumen. And I think about, uh, if I'm not mistaken, two, two and a half million barrels a day get shipped down to the US market. And so the average, uh, carbon intensity of a barrel of this ultra heavy sour crude uh, is about 70 kilograms. And the American average is around 40 or, or 45. And, and so the, the bitumen is, is one of the most carbon intense crudes on the planet. So that's one of the reasons why the environmental, environmental groups don't like it, uh, because it's a, you know, potentially a, a big, well, it is a big contributor to, to climate change. Uh, and and then the uh, the other issue is that there are environmental impacts. I mean, there are 37 tailings ponds from the mines 
containing 1.4 trillion liters of, of toxic tailings that the industry still has not figured out a way to, uh, to uh, remediate and reclaim those tailing ponds, even though they're supposed to, to do that. Uh, so combine, you know, put those together and that explains a lot of the reason why environmental groups were opposed to Keystone XL. Now, the problem here is that the Keystone XL was supposed to go down and serve the U.S. Gulf Coast. And there's two and a half million barrels a day of this heavy crude refining capacity there. There's about five and a half million in the U.S. in total. And that's about half of the global total uh, refining capacity for heavy crude. So anyway, the U.S. Gulf Coast is a very, very important market. And the, the um, decline of the Venezuelan uh, oil industry, uh, their production fell off a, a cliff uh, over the last five or six years, especially because of sanctions, uh, has, has made the supply in the U.S. Gulf Coast much tighter. So supplying 830,000 barrels a day through the Keystone XL pipeline seemed like a really good idea, and certainly there's a demand for it. And then on top of that, Mexico, which exports the Maya heavy crude, uh, they announced uh, a couple months ago that they intend in 2024 to, to stop exporting 600,000 barrels a day of heavy crude to the U.S. Gulf Coast. So there really is a, a crying need in that for the, for the product. The problem is you've got the opposition from the environmental groups, and that delayed the project, you know, for 10, 15 years. But now the, the question is, would you revive it? Because why would you build 50, 75-year infrastructure when it, peak oil is coming in 10 years, and who knows what the decline is going to look like? So it doesn't look like a very good use of 10 or $15 billion. If you're That's very interesting, uh, Malcolm. Let's turn to electricity. Canada produces a lot of green electricity. You have tremendous uh, resources in hydropower, but also you're fairly advanced in nuclear power. What is the balance between those two? Well, in Canada, 80 to 80, I think it's around 82, 83% of the, of the grid is already carbon-free. And that would be 60% hydro, 17% nuclear, and the rest would be made up of uh, some wind and solar. And we still have coal in provinces like uh, Alberta and, and Nova Scotia and Saskatchewan. But the federal government has uh, mandated that the uh, coal has to be phased out by 2030. And then they've set the goal of, uh, of net zero for the, the power grid by 2035. The, the problem here is going to be that most economic modelers that I've interviewed say that Canada and the US are going to need two to three times as much electricity as we adopt electric cars and heat pumps for our homes and buildings and elect, you know, like electrical processes for things like steelmaking. So we're gonna need a lot more electricity. And the question in Canada is how do you get, how do you double or triple your power generation it build more infra uh, transmission, build more distribution infrastructure, and still supply clean energy down into the United States. And this is a, you know, the Americans are having this very robust, uh, fulsome discussion about modernizing your grid. You're putting tens of billions of dollars into it and figuring out how to integrate, you know, high percentages of renewals, of renewables. And Canada, we've just we're about five or 10 years behind that conversation. And so we haven't got the answers yet to, to, uh, to some of these, these questions, 
but there is a tremendous uh, trade between the provinces with hydro, so BC, Manitoba, and Quebec. And will that increase? Uh, it, it, I think it's a, while some of the, uh, the uh, utilities would like to see, and the governments that own them, and that's, a, I should point out, that's another big difference between Canada and the US. Most of the electricity, uh, the electrical utilities in Canada are owned by, by the provincial governments. And so that makes every, that adds another complicating layer to all of this. But the National Renewable Energy Laboratory uh, in the US did a study last year that showed there's huge financial benefit to, to more tightly integrating US and Canadian electricity systems. So there's, there's all sorts of tensions and issues that have to be resolved. But I think bro more broadly speaking, more power, more widely traded between the two countries is, is generally regarded as a good thing. We import into the United States a good deal of electricity from Canada as it stands. How much is that? Um, I don't have the number uh, offhand for how many terawatts a, a year it would be. Um, Quebec exports a substantial amount of, into the North northeast of the United States. And of course, they've, they would like to do more, but they've had their uh, that's a big transmission project through Maine uh, has been delayed again. Um, in British Columbia, there's a fair amount of trade already with Washington State and into the Western electricity market. And we'll see where how that's going to go. BC's in a very odd position. It's got 32 hydro dams, 97% of its power comes from hydro. But the current dam that's under construction, Site C, only adds about another seven or eight percent of the power, and then they're not going to build any more hydro dams. So if they need twice as much power or three times as much power by 2050, where are they going to get it? Now, the, the Minister of Energy in BC, Bruce Ralston, has said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just buy cheap uh, power, uh, you know, California solar. Well, you know, the Californians are busy adding energy storage and they're building a hydrogen hub in LA and they're doing all sorts of things to make sure that they get to keep that cheap solar in their own market. So the, this, this issue of, you know, the trade back and forth between the countries, between various provinces and the American markets is incredibly complex, Llewellyn. And, and I don't think we've, we've got a real good handle in our country yet on how that's going to play out. Um, how is the water supply on the west coast of Canada? The largest problem that most utilities face outside of complying with myriad regulations seems to be transmission. Nobody wants transmission, particularly if they're not immediately benefiting. For example, there's a surplus, especially during the day when the sun is shining, in the American West, and it's needed in the American East, but there are not enough transmission lines to carry it across country, and nobody wants to build a transmission line anywhere, anyway, especially if they're not a beneficiary. If they're simply, if you simply have the transmission line running through your state or your county or even your community, is that a Canadian problem as well? It, it is, and I don't think it's to the, quite the same extent as, uh, as it is in the U.S. And part of that is because of the fractured nature of the uh, Canadian electricity system. We don't have a national system. What we have, because electricity is the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces, we basically have uh, 10 
little silos that don't trade much with each other, if at all, and then three territories up in, in the north. And, and th that, those silos, those islands, tend to uh, trade electricity north and south, if they trade, uh, rather than east and west. Now, the, there's a lot of discussion in Canada because we are finally beginning to have this conversation about how we're going to modernize our grid and generate all this extra power. If you take Western Canada, you've got on the, 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 uh, of the four provinces you've, on the bookends are our big hydro provinces. So you've got BC on the, on the west and Manitoba on the east. And in the center, you've got Alberta and Saskatchewan, which have a lot, you know, the prairie provinces, they get a lot of sun. And and uh, their uh, wind and solar resources are excellent. So the logical thing, if we were, if 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 science and and uh, and rationality were involved in this, it, you would have east-west trade, and the you know the Alberta and Saskatchewan would, would produce cheap, plentiful solar, uh, you know, during the day and wind when the wind is is blowing, and you would use the the hydro resources in BC and, and Manitoba essentially as batteries. And, and this would be a highly efficient, very cost-effective, very uh, reliable way uh, of integrating more renewables into, into the system. The problem, of course, is politics. There are disputes between BC and Alberta. You know, the, the Alberta was a big champion of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, which would be finished in a year or two and sending oil down to California in part. And, and then BC wanted to stop Trans Mountain Expansion and they were fighting and they were gonna turn off, one was gonna turn off oil. And, and so these kinds of interprovincial tensions prohibit the kind of uh, cooperation around these issues that really are needed. Now, in the last election and uh, more recently, the, the federal government has proposed a pan-Canadian grid council. So the idea is to get the premiers sitting at the table and talking to one another instead of throwing buns at each other across the Rocky Mountains. And, and then maybe we can get something going, but this is a, that's a very difficult conversation in Canada and the federal government doesn't have a lot of leverage. It doesn't have, it, because constitutionally until something crosses a border, uh, when it comes to energy, that all gets regulated uh, by the provinces. And then the provinces, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they own mostly own the crown, uh, the, the, mostly own the utilities. And so the utilities are hamstrung uh, from engaging in these conversations. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, diff it's a, a very difficult situation that we've got here, Llewellyn. We have a very interesting situation, which is the development of small modular reactors that are designed to revive the nuclear industry in the US to bring nuclear power back into the mixture as a, as a new addition. And yet, uh, a lot of it is being developed in Canada or China because of uh, regulatory restrictions in the US. How big is the development effort on small modular reactors in Canada? Well, Canada, of course, has the can-do uh, reactor technology. It's been around for decades. And there are five nuclear power plants in Canada with 22 reactors. They're mostly in, in Ontario. Uh, and the, this, this decade, on the Ontario uh, utilities are going to take three of those power plants offline, one for or two for refurbishing and one for uh, retirement. So the Ontario power generation is working on an SMR project now, 
And uh, I interviewed the vice president who told me that probably the earliest they could get it up and running would be 2028, uh, could be as late as the early 2030s. Now, Ontario joined in a coalition, if you will, with uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick. Uh, the four provinces are studying how to develop and commercialize the SMR technology. Now, Alberta, outside of Ontario, Alberta is the, the biggest, other biggest pro province in that, in that coalition. And it has a lot of interest in, in it because uh, I mentioned earlier, but the oil sands using a lot of natural gas. Well, one of the byproducts uh, of nuclear power, of course, is, is hot water. And it's entirely possible that, that that process heat could substitute for natural gas if you built SMRs next to oil sands projects up in, in northern Alberta. Now, this is all conceptual at this point. The, you know, there's a lot of talk about SMRs. There's a lot of political support for SMRs in some provinces like Alberta and Ontario. Uh, the federal government has said that they expect SMRs to be part of the, the mix going forward. Uh, so we're, we're not, we're, I guess we're at the initial stages of the SMR conversation. And it's not clear how that's going to evolve, but uh, there is some political will for sure. How about rooftop solar? It's uh, all the rage in the United States. You can hardly see a, a building going up, a house going up, that it doesn't have rooftop solar and a lot of retrofitting. It doesn't always fit in with the utilities as well as uh, people would like it to. Uh, what is the penetration of rooftop solar in Canada like? Well, I've been following the California discussion around rooftop solar with, with some interest uh, because there's so much of it. Uh, unfortunately, in Canada, we don't have as nearly as much. And a lot of it has to do with either the reluctance of the utilities or simply the resource. So, you know, if you're in British Columbia, if you're in Vancouver, for example, you know, it gets, you know, six months of rain every year. It's not really economic uh, to, to have uh, rooftop panels. Uh, my, my friends who have uh, rooftop solar in Alberta, for example, uh, think it's quite a bit more economic, but then those are fairly small markets. And then when you get into Ontario, uh, Ontario in 2009 went in on wind in a big way because it wanted to phase out coal, which it did, which is a huge success. But they, the way they constructed the, the wind program at that time uh, there was a lot of debate about it, accusations that it led to huge increases in, uh, in ratepayers' bills, that sort of thing. And so the current government uh, of uh, Doug Ford, uh, when it got, came into power in 2018, basically tore down wind turbines and canceled projects. And there's been no policy or, or financial support for rooftop solar. So it's basically languished in, in Ontario. And in Quebec, of course, you have so much hydropower that there's, I, I'm sure there's some support there for it. But when you've got the, you know, you're paying seven cents a kilowatt hour for hydroelectricity, there's not a lot of incentive. So I don't, I think you'll, you'll find it, in, particularly in Alberta and Saskatchewan, you're going to see big utility scale solar, but it's not clear yet that uh, rooftop solar is going to be a major player in the Canadian electricity market. You mentioned the impact on the utilities of electric vehicles uh, and electric trucks and the whole panoply of electric things that move. Uh, is there a lot of passion for 
EVs at the consumer level for the individual, or is it an institutional uh, move? Well, the way it works in Canada is, is uh, that the support for EV adoption came from two provinces, British Columbia and Quebec. They both have zero emission vehicle mandates, which means, you know, the sales mandate. So a certain percentage of all the autos sold in those two provinces uh, have to be uh, electric or hydrogen or, or hybrid. And so what's happened is that that the automakers, uh, because they want to comply with the regulations, send the majority of their inventory uh, to BC and Quebec. And that's caused some consternation in other provinces where customers who want to buy, you know, find a shortage of, of inventory. Uh, now that's going to be solved uh, shortly because the federal government will bring in a similar kind of mandate at the national level. But at this point, I would have to say that the most enthusiasm has been in BC and, and Quebec. But over the last two years, I, I would say the change in consumer uh, perception of electric vehicles and demand for electric vehicles has mirrored what's going on in the United States. I mean, people, and now I think the perception is that electric vehicles are viable, they're competitive, uh, they bring a lot of value to the table, you know, they're, they're a nice ride. Uh, now you can buy an, an, an F-150 Lightning and maybe power your house for three days in a, in a power outage. That value, uh, you know, uh, appeals to Canadians just like it does Americans. So I would say the level of support uh, in, for electrification of light duty pa uh, passenger vehicles is, is about the same or maybe a little higher than the United States, not as high as in Europe, not as high as in, in China, but we're, we're on par with the- Malcolm, uh, we're coming towards the end of our time together. Tell me about the materials that go into batteries. Isn't Canada a source of a lot of those precious materials? Canada is, and Canada produces cobalt, uh, magnesium, uh, nickel, produce a, a fair amount of nickel, and we have lithium uh, deposits. And I've interviewed a couple of com companies from Calgary who actually have new nanotech te technology that will uh, take uh, strip lithium out of fluids. So in, one, in the case of one company, it, it strips it out of uh, produced water that's created during oil and gas extraction. The other one is out of any briny liquid uh, from an, an underground uh, source. So uh, Canada, the, the White House has already entered into conversations with the Canadian government about how to, uh, how to uh, um, better integrate Canadian uh, critical mineral production into the US EV supply chain and Canadian, uh, the mining industry is already gearing up and thinking about, you know, investing in f increasing production in the in those minerals. So I think that uh, uh, the, the the take here is that our industry will expand to to meet the needs of both domestic battery manufacturers as well as American battery manufacturers. Well, thank you so much for joining us on White House Chronicle, Markham Hislop from Energy in Canada one of its premier journalists. I have some news. I'm planning to go to Canada for part of the summer and I will not be wearing a bow tie. In fact, I will be so casually dressed that people will not recognize me. Uh, if you see me, I will have to identify myself to you, Markham. Until next time, that's White House Chronicle. Take care, cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, 
wherever you listen. We are there.